So to introduce our uh, presenter uh, tonight, uh, Father Tom, uh, most of you know him through his very fine uh, journalistic and, and, and writing work, but uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to learn that uh, Tom actually had done work in advocating and lobbying and writing about tax reform in Washington, D.C. before he got involved in, I think, the, the work that so many of us know him for. He's currently the senior analyst and author of the Signs of the Times column for Religion News Service. Father Tom entered the Jesuits in 1962 and was ordained to the priesthood in 1974. He was educated at St. Louis University, the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley, and the University of California, Berkeley, where he received his PhD in political science. Prior to joining Religion News Service in 2017, Tom was columnist for the National Catholic Reporter, where his current column still regularly appears. He was also an associate editor and later editor-in-chief at America Magazine. He has been a senior fellow at the Woodstock Theological Center from 1985 to 1998, and again from 2006 to 2013. In 2014, uh, he was appointed by President Obama to be on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and was elected to a one-year term as chair of the commission in June of 2016. He's the author of a trilogy of books on the organization and the structure of the Catholic Church. His first book is Archbishop Inside the Power Structure of the American Catholic Church, which was published in 1989. That was followed up with A Flock of Shepherds, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, which was published in 1992. And the last in the trilogy is Inside the Vatican, the Politics and Organization of the Catholic Church, which was published in 1996. Father Tom, welcome so much, or welcome and thank you so much for being here. Before I hand things over to you, I am going to hand things over to Deb uh, to get us started with a quick prayer to open our conversation. Well, thank you, Russ, and thanks, Tom, for being here tonight. Um, as we look at the uh, present crisis within the church, we pray. Oh, God of compassion, open our ears to hear and respond with love to the anguished cries of victim survivors of clergy sex abuse. O God of vision, open our eyes to clearly see the systems and structures that sustain injustice and envision a bold way forward for becoming your holy people. O God of truth, open our lips to speak the truth to all and especially to power, plainly and without impediment, the truth about clergy sex abuse, about the cover-up, about our experience. O God of creation, open our hands to courageously take up the difficult prophetic work you set before us and work to build your reign of truth, justice, and love. Amen. Thank Amen. you, Deb. Uh, thank you so much for that prayer, uh, which I really think sets the tone for everything we want to talk about this evening. Uh, 
You know, I think we, we have to start, just as your prayer did, with a focus on the survivors of sexual abuse. This is what, uh, this is what everything is about. How can we help the survivors of sexual abuse? Uh, what is best for them? Uh, because they have been terribly injured by uh, the abuse they experienced and the way that they were treated by uh, leadership in the church. Uh, so uh, whatever we talk about, whatever we do has to be focused on them and what will help them. Uh, I once made a comment uh, in a column uh, saying that just as the uh, Catholic Church in Latin America had a preferential option for the poor, uh, I think the Catholic Church in the United States has to make the same kind of preferential option for survivors of clerical sexual abuse. Uh, this is, they have to be the focus Everything we do has to be judged by, will this help the victims of abuse? So I, I, I'm really uh, very pleased, uh, Deb, with the, with the way you started your prayer, uh, with, with its focus on abuse. Now, uh, the abuse crisis, of course, has two uh, aspects to it. Uh, first is the actual uh, assault, the actual rape, the actual abuse of children uh, by the clergy. Uh, this, this is such an incredible betrayal uh, of these children. Uh, it is such an inc incredible uh, betrayal of everything uh, the priesthood is supposed to be about. Uh, it is, it's a sacrilege. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's damaging beyond comprehension uh, to these, these children. Uh, and it's something that never, never should have happened. Uh, and we have to do everything possible to make sure that this does not happen again. Uh, and that starts with making sure that anyone involved in the abuse of a minor uh, can never act as a priest again. Uh, it took uh, the bishops a long time uh, to get there. Uh, and uh, it was not until 2002 in the Dallas Charter that the bishops committed themselves to saying that even a single uh, act of abuse against a child uh, makes it a priest totally uh, unacceptable uh, as as a priest and uh, to be in ministry. And any priest who is involved in any abuse has to be removed from the priesthood. Uh, there is no second chance. There is no oh, you know, maybe he can uh, be, you know, we can fix it, you know, maybe. No, no. It is over for that priest. 
he does not have a right to be a priest ever again and has to be removed. And it was not until 2002 that the, the bishops adopted this practice. Um, and, and, and that, uh, you know, was the first and most important thing uh, that they did at, at Dallas, was make that decision. And there was a lot of controversy about it. There were still uh, bishops at Dallas who did not want to do that. Um, I think ultimately the bishops did it because they realized that deciding which priest could be safe to return to ministry was an impossible task. And even if you were right 90% of the time, the injury you would do to children in that 10% failure rate is just unacceptable. It cannot be. It cannot happen. Uh, and I think that the bishops uh, basically at, at Dallas decided they couldn't trust each other uh, to make this decision. They were seeing, you know, what other, what bishops were doing and the failures, and uh, uh, they decided that uh, this just could not go on. So the zero tolerance rule came into effect in 2002. Uh, that was a, a really important change in the church's attitude. The second thing that is important there in terms of protecting children is putting in place screening programs for seminarians, background checks, uh, training programs, education in, uh, uh, for seminarians and priests on uh, their obligation, their responsibility to report uh, things to the uh, uh, abuse uh, to uh, police and uh, proper civil authorities. Uh, this, of course, was the other extremely important part of the Dallas uh, Charter, the Dallas Agreement, was that the church would no longer say that uh, we can take care of this internally. No, uh, this is not just a sin. This is a crime. It has to be reported to the police and has to be dealt with there. The problem there, of course, was that often these, uh, com these uh, uh, crimes came to light and were uh, reported much too late. The statute of limitations had expired and it was impossible to prosecute uh, most of these priests because we know for a fact that uh, children come, you know, survivors of abuse, it takes years for them uh, to process what happened and to uh, have the ability to come forward and as a result, very, very, very few priests were ever prosecuted uh, under the law. Uh, and uh, the need to get the police involved uh, is extremely important, but it's not going to solve uh, things uh, in a lot of situations because of the criminal statute of limitations. 
And that's, of course, why the the, uh, church also needs a process for dealing with accusations uh, against priests. Uh, Because, okay, maybe he can't be convicted in a court of law, but we still have to have a process within the church to decide, well, he isn't safe for ministry and he needs to be kicked out. So the the bishops at Dallas set up a process where if someone is is accused, uh, if a priest or cleric or a church employee is accused of sexual abuse of a minor, there is a process for investigating that and finding out what uh, actually happened. And uh, so the process, you know, just in outline, uh, is that uh, a person would be suspended while an investigation takes place. All of the accusations are presented to a lay review board uh, that that each diocese has. And hopefully that lay review board has on it people with expertise in sexual crimes, prosecutors, police, uh, lay people who, uh, who can be a good judgment on these things. Because clearly, if it was only the clergy that was involved in investigating and judging these cases, uh, it ain't going to work. Uh, there, you know, there's, uh, uh, when I was doing researching, uh, uh, my book, uh, on the, uh, archbishops, one of the stories I heard was about a bishop who had set up a committee to investigate a priest who had been charged with abuse. And the committee came back and said, uh, you know, this this priest should be removed from ministry. So the bishop brought the case to uh, his cabinet. Now, his cabinet at the time was made up almost entirely of priests. There was one layman on the cabinet. And that layman had only been on the job for a week. And so this uh, particular report was presented, and the bishop asked each person on the cabinet to go around the table and say what they thought and what they recommended. Did they agree with the recommendation of this committee that this priest be removed from ministry? Well, they went around the table and each of the priests said, oh yeah, but he's such a nice guy. We ought to give him another chance. And finally came down to the the layman uh, to, respond and the layman was thinking he told me he was thinking to himself oh my god this is my first week on the job and it's probably going to be my last week on the job because he spoke up he said no way you cannot do this This, you know this committee investigated the case that came with this recommendation you'd have to have an awfully good reason to overrule that luckily the bishop smiled and said you know it's a good thing that church isn't democracy because we're not, the cabinet doesn't vote, I decide. And he decided to keep the priest out of ministry. But what would have happened if that layman's voice had not been there at the table? Too often, that voice was not there at the table. 
the problem with, I think one of the problems with the clergy, it's, it's of course, clericalism. It's the club. It's, you know, well, we're, you know, we all went to seminary together. We all friends, you know, uh, we can't, how can we betray one of our own? Uh, and this is a problem every profession has with whether it's police or doctors or anybody, no profession is good at judging, uh, itself. That's why you have to have outside lay commissions. Uh, but in any case here, uh, you know, is a case where you, the, the lay review boards are extremely important in having this outside judgment, uh, that comes in and looks at these cases. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, one of the problems clerics have, of course, is also they don't have any children. Now, you have a group of lay people on the commission, on a committee, uh, with children. Each of them, when they hear this case, when they look at this case, each of them thinks to themselves, how would I feel if this was my child? And frankly, priests don't think that because they don't have children. That's why they, they more easily identified with the priest. They're all thinking, oh, what if it was me that was accused? That's why you've got to have lay people involved in the decision making uh, and cannot leave this simply uh, to priests. And, you know, and after the investigation is done, uh, if the, the uh, uh, priest is found to be guilty of uh, being involved in abuse, then he has to be uh, removed from ministry and not allowed to be uh, act as a priest again. Now, one of the problems they had early on uh, in the history of sexual abuse was that uh, canon lawyers would say, oh, you can't throw him out unless he has a canonical trial. Uh, well, canonical trials are extremely complicated and can take years. Um, and that just simply was not going to work in dealing with this crisis. Uh, we didn't have enough canon lawyers. We didn't have enough courts. Canon lawyers are mostly trained to deal with annulment cases, not criminal cases. So it, it, the whole system broke down. And it was, frankly, it was Cardinal Ratzinger who in the, you know, was, who got the responsibility for dealing with uh, abuse cases uh, from John Paul II, who basically decided to throw canonical trials out the window. And he he basically dealt with these by reading the case files himself uh, and having his staff read them. And then if, the, if he judged that the uh, evidence was overwhelming, then he would just rule, we don't need a trial, this guy's out. And that, that streamlined the process tremendously. Uh, it was objected to by many canon lawyers who said, no, 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 they, need a, they deserve a trial. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, you know, I think uh, Ratzinger was right. Uh, this was a crisis situation. It needed a system. Uh, the church needed a system that would deal with this, with this, with these priests expeditiously, especially because 
what we discovered was there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of priests around the world who were involved in this kind of abuse, and there was no other way to, to deal with it. So this beginning was extremely important, the, the, this first part of dealing with the abusive priests getting them out of the priesthood so that they could not abuse again, and then setting up training programs and screening programs uh, to, you know, not just for priests, but also for parishes and uh, anybody who deals with children. Uh, today, now, if you're even a volunteer in a parish, you have to go through, you have to be fingerprinted and go through a police background check uh, before you can get near children uh, in a parish uh, program. Uh, these are the kinds of things we need. And we need appropriate training for, for children, too, that is age-appropriate on, war you know, teaching them about abuse so that they know this is not right. This, this is, you yell no, and you tell your parents, you go to a teacher, you do, you know, uh, so that children, uh, you know, uh, cannot be exploited in this way. So uh, this was really part one of the whole process of, uh, of dealing with abuse, uh, responding to the crimes and doing, setting up programs to help make sure that uh, crimes don't happen again in the future. But that's part one of the abuse crisis. The second part of the abuse crisis was the response of the hierarchy. And this was, in the early days, was absolutely disastrous. Uh, in the early days of the abuse, uh, bishops thought that, uh, oh, you know, he's sorry. Uh, he, he recognizes he committed a sin. Okay, he's sorry now, and we'll send him off to another uh, parish, you know, uh, away from the temptation he had in this other parish which was absolute nonsense, of course. But uh, this, was, this was their understanding of it. Uh, later, they, they thought, oh, well, let's send him to a therapist. Let's send him to a psychologist. And then you had psychologists and therapists who would send uh, the person back to uh, the bishop and say, he's okay, he, you can send him to, you know, uh, putting back into ministry. Um, there was some really, really bad advice that bishops got in terms of dealing with it. But worst of all was the way they treated uh, the uh, victims, the survivors of abuse and their families when they came forward. Total denial, uh, attacking them, telling them they were bad Catholics for bringing this up, or if they if they acknowledge that it actually happened, then telling them, oh, you can't talk about this. You, this has got to be secret. This would be terrible for the church if this got out, if this became publicly known, the scandal, oh, the scandal. Uh, and, and, the, the, and they were lied to. They were told, oh, okay, well, well, we'll make sure this never happens again. We'll remove him from ministry. And then they'd find out that he was assigned to another parish on the other side of town. Uh, it was just horrendous the, the way that some bishops dealt with 
uh, with victims and these accusations. Uh, it was an absolute disaster uh, for the families, for the victims, and for the people who became uh, victims uh, once again afterwards. So uh, all of this was a second abuse of uh, the victims, the way they were treated by uh, the bishops. Now, uh, I would argue that for the most part, uh, these days are over. They're not completely over. We have the systems in place for dealing with abusive priests. Uh, we, you know, we have, we have lay review boards. We have requirements that people be reported to the police, abusers, etc. The problem is that we have almost 200 dioceses in the United States. And if you think that every one of these bishops knows what he's doing and doing the right thing, uh, I'll show you the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, you know, some of them just screw up. Some of them are stupid. Some of them are, are, uh, are just immoral in the way, in their attitudes. They, they either have not bought in to the new procedures or, uh, for some reason they're deciding, uh, they're just not going to implement them. That's why we have to be on guard. We have to be constantly vigilant that these procedures are implemented, are enforced. Uh, and that is the responsibility of the local bishop. And the, the final thing I might say here is that in terms of the pro policies and procedures, this is where we have a major problem, a lacuna. And, it, and that is, we don't really have a policy or policies and procedures for dealing with bishops who don't do their job, who don't enforce the policies and procedures that have been adopted by the church. Uh, you know, because again, like I say, there's almost 200 dioceses and they've got to be implemented in each one of these dioceses. And who's, who, who's watching these bishops to make sure that they do what they're supposed to do? And of course, this is, this is a job uh, that for the media. Uh, it's a job for the laity in each diocese. It's a, you know, it's a job for the clergy in each diocese to hold their, their bishop accountable too. But ultimately, you know, the bishop reports to the Pope. So, I, you know, I love Pope Francis, but uh, he's got some work to do here. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, when he, he uh, I don't think quite got it in terms of holding bishops responsible and accountable. He's done it for uh, a few bishops. But if you recall, a, a year ago, he was in Chile where he was defending bishops against accusations uh, from victims and the media. And after he went back home to Rome, he realized he'd really screwed up. He had really made a mistake. He had been ill-informed and uh, uh, he, was, he had simply was wrong. And God bless him, he admitted it and recognized that he had made a mistake. 
And uh, that was when he sent the Archbishop of Malta to investigate the situation in Chile. And the Archbishop came back with uh, a, a very, very long report. I think it was a couple thousand pages uh, report on the situation. And Pope Francis realized what a, a mess he had made of it. And so he and he was very angry at the bishops in Chile. So he demanded that all of the bishops in Chile submit their resignations. And uh, he has accepted some of those resignations uh, already and replaced some. And uh, we're hoping that he will do some more. Uh, but there still are a lot of bishops out there who have not done their job and that Pope Francis needs to deal with. Uh, the problem is, you know, Pope Francis, I think, gets it, but he doesn't have a process for implementing it. You know, he has thousands of bishops who report directly to him. Well, that's just an impossible. You've got to have a structure in the Vatican, uh, you know, something like an attorney general who's, in, who's responsible for investigating accusations against a bishop, whether it's uh, uh, sexual abuse by the bishop, or whether it's cover-up and not doing his job, or or even financial uh, shenanigans uh, by a bishop. Uh, we, you know, we have <laughs> we retired the Inquisition, and but we never got anything good to replace it with. And we need some kind of investigative arm uh, based in the Vatican with lay people doing most of the work, frankly, uh, of, of being investigators. I mean, we don't have many people like the Archbishop of Malta who, who, are, who you know, can do the kind of investigation he did. Uh, frankly, I would like to see him you know, appointed by the Pope as the chief prosecutor or whatever, the attorney general, whatever you want to call them, uh, Department of Justice in the Vatican to deal with these kinds of things. And then have him hire all sorts of lay uh, investigators, lay people uh, to do the investigations and then have some kind of a process for uh, adjudicating, you know, uh, reviewing the the evidence and, and passing judgment on on uh, on this and then you know if the bishop hasn't done his job or if he's done wrong then he needs to be punished he needs to be removed he needs we need change uh, but we need a system to do that as uh, the bishops in the united states have finally uh, recognized that and talked about it uh, during their meeting in november uh, just last year and at the meeting, uh, they were told by the Vatican, by the prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, uh, hold off, don't, don't vote on anything, uh, because we want to wait till the, all, the uh, Pope has his meeting in February, where he's called together the presidents of all the Episcopal conferences around the world. I think that was a mistake. I think they should have let the bishops continue their discussions and, and have some votes and see, see what they could come up with. I think the American bishops should have been allowed to lead the church uh, and not wait uh, for everybody else to catch up. 
uh, now I'm not sure the bishops would have come up with uh, uh, a good proposal. Uh, they had two proposals uh, on the table. One was to set up a lay, uh, na- a national lay commission to take uh, accusations against uh, bishops. The other was to use the structure of the uh, uh, the structure of the uh, archbishops, the metropolitan, where any accusations against the bishop would be reported to the. Re- to the Metropolitan, to the local Archbishop, and uh, he would be responsible for investigating them. And and uh, and in either case, the uh, uh, the conclusion of the investigation would be reported to the Nuncio, uh, who would then uh, pass it on to Rome for for judgment. Um, I frankly don't think, uh, I think uh, the, whatever the investigative system is, it's got to have lay people involved or it has absolutely no credibility. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to see what comes of that. Now, there is going to be, as I mentioned, this meeting in uh, Rome in February. Uh, I am not optimistic. I wrote a column recently saying that I think the meeting's going to be a failure. Four days is just too short a time to deal with this kind of a crisis. Uh, you know, if every bishop got up and spoke for for five minutes, that would take up half the meeting, practically. Uh, so I don't, you know, the only way it would work would be if the Pope came in and read them, read them the riot act and said, this is what you got to do, go home and do it. But that's not his style. Uh, you know, he, 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 he doesn't think like a prosecutor or a sheriff. He thinks like a pastor. Uh, and he, uh, he, he really values collegiality. Uh, well, collegiality is slow. Uh, and discussion and trying to build consensus is slow. And I think uh, most of us have lost patience and want to see uh, action. So I think we may very well be disappointed by what happens at the meeting in Rome. I think for the Americans, the meeting in Rome is going to be a ho-hum. On the other hand, for bishops around the world, this could be extremely important because, frankly, there are a lot of bishops around the world are that are where the American bishops were 30, 40 years ago. Uh, They just don't get it yet. They don't believe they have a problem. They think this is a North North American problem or an English-speaking problem or a First World problem. Uh, And they're in total denial, some of them. Now, others are actually cleaning house uh, already, but many of them just don't believe it. They don't get it. And of course, in, in many of them coming from these traditional cultures where uh, if uh, a, a, a survivor of abuse is going to be very reluctant to come forward, um, just as survivors of abuse were very reluctant to come forward uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago uh, in the United States. So uh, it's going to be very important for the Americans at this meeting to get up and tell the other bishops, get your act together. Don't make the same mistakes we did, Uh, you know, and, and help them, you know, so that they don't make all the same mistakes that the American bishops did. 
Um, so anyway, I think these are things that we need to be concerned about. Uh, and we can see clearly that clericalism is a root cause of all of this problem and difficulty. And, is, and thank God Pope Francis is very strong against clericalism. He hates clericalism. I think it's probably part of his Jesuit background. But he is very negative on that. Uh, he, uh, he constantly tells uh, bishops and priests, don't act like princes. Uh, remember, you're, you're at the bottom of the pyramid, not at the top, uh, and that you're servants of the people of God, not, not their rulers. Uh, this is all extremely important. I think Francis has the right idea in that what is required is a real conversion of heart. Uh, sociologists would say what's required is a cultural change in the institution. Uh, in theology, we would say what's required is a conversion. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm a political scientist, so I say we also need structures. We need procedures. We need policies. We need, you know, and I'm not sure Pope Francis thinks that way. And uh, that's, you know, he's got great strengths, but I think that's one of his weaknesses. Anyway, I've gone on too long. Uh, let me stop there and uh, and open it up for uh for you all. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, I am going to open up the lines uh, in just a second here for folks to uh, ask their questions. So once I've done that, what you'll want to do is press star six. That will unmute yourself. Then you can ask your question. And when you're finished asking your question, uh, you can press star six again uh, to mute yourself. And then we'll uh, let someone else ask a question. Please make sure that your questions are on topic. Uh, if you have further reflections or other resources or anything else that you want to say that's not necessarily on topic, you can certainly email me, uh, russ at futurechurch.org. I did have one uh, to get us uh, started while folks are preparing their questions, Tom. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, clericalism as sort of the root uh, you know, cause of uh, one of the root causes of this, and the need for a cultural shift, some policy shifts, some conversion. What role can we, as everyday lay people? I mean, we're not going to be on lay review boards. We're not going to be in the Pope's Attorney General's office. Um, what can we do, as just folks in the pews, folks at parishes, um, to help speed that cultural shift, those policies? Uh, uh, that, that conversion along? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I would start with some simple things at the parish. You know, is your pastor, in fact, implementing all of the rules that he's supposed to? Are people getting police background checks? Are there training programs for the uh, parish staff? Are, you know, what is, what is, uh, how is this being treated in religious education programs for children? Are children being educated and trained to recognize when people violate their boundaries and doing things to them that they should not be doing? Uh, you know, that, that's all at the local parish level. And if the people in the parish don't ask questions, don't ask, you know, what's, you know are we doing what we're supposed to be doing even at the parish level? 
then uh, you know, then this whole system is 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 not going to uh, work as well as it should. Uh, this, I guess, you know, the be beyond that, then you know, I don't know. Somehow we have to keep an eye on the on your local bishop and is he doing his job? Um, and that's I, I'm not sure how you do that. I guess you would start with, has he uh, revealed the names of all the priests that were involved in abuse in your diocese? And if he has not, demand that he does. Most, this, I think uh, most bishops are now doing this, where there will be a website which will list uh, uh, all of the bish- all the priests who have been credibly accused and uh, uh, where they served. Uh, while they were a priest. Um, I think that's extremely important because people can look at that, especially uh, survivors of abuse. They can look at that and say, well, wait a minute, the guy who did it to me isn't on that list. And then, you know, they can come forward and say, hey, no, it's not complete. What what about Father so-and-so? That's extremely important. That's why these lists have to be up. And, and it's all, on the other hand, it's also a, a survivor abuse can go on that website and see, yes, the priest who abused me is on this list. The church is recognizing that this guy did it. It's an acknowledgement, a validation of what I have been saying for decades. And that's extremely important uh, for, uh, uh, for victims of abuse to have that validation to hear the church publicly say, yes, this guy is guilty. This guy did do this. And, and that is uh, uh, extremely important for them. Um, I think, you know, somehow, too, we as, as the church have to figure out how we can, I don't know, how we can help victims of abuse. I mean, it, 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 it just listening to their stories, listening to their what happened to them, uh, is 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 extremely important, you know, in their healing process. It can be very painful, can be very difficult uh, to do that. Uh, but you know, I think that's something that the parishes can do. Uh, I you know, if there are any people in the parish who have been the victims of abuse, you know, you know, how do we help them? I mean, and it doesn't necessarily have to be victims of clerical abuse. It can be, uh, there are a lot of people who are abused out there uh, who, who were abused uh, uh, by people other than priests. And, and I think, you know, I, I dream of the day when the church is not part of the problem, but part of the solution. And that's yeah. going to re- require us and you know in parishes to have programs that reach out to uh survivors of abuse i mean what is what is our what is you know the question to ask of your parish your parish council and your pastor and your parish community is what are you doing what are we doing as a parish to help the victims of abuse whether by the clergy or by anybody else this is an epidemic in the United States. 
and that we need to do something about. And I think it's something, and because of the failure uh, in the past, I think uh, uh, we have a special obligation to try to be part of the solution. So I don't, you know, I think there's, I'd love to hear other people's suggestions uh, also on what to do. So uh, Russ, uh, this is Deb. So Tom, I'd like to just ask a, a couple of points as well. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at a couple of things that do not give me hope. Um, for instance, the January meeting where, in Chicago, uh, where, I mean, I don't know what your opinion is of it, but I, I was mortified that they didn't talk about clergy sex abuse, it seems to me, at, a, a very, at any kind of deep level. And that um, no, there was there was no real, you know, no way to sort of enter into any kind of repentance as I could see it. Um, and I and so I wondered what you thought about number one, the January meeting. Uh, I wondered what you thought about the fact that Supich, which is part of the planning committee for this February meeting, came out with a very strong statement saying we have to cede all authority to people outside of our system. Um, and then comes back with this proposal for a metropolitan bishop again, which has no credibility in the eyes of many Catholics. Like bishops have failed. How could a, a system where a metropolitan bishop is in charge, you know, now somehow succeed? So, you know, for me, that's that's an important part. Then there's a whole commission, and then you know, Marie Collins and and what happened, what has what has happened to that? And where is that going? And does it have any real part to play? So, you know, there's, you know, and, and then in terms of the February meeting, of course, you know, we have that question about what, what could it mean, you know, and, and I liked your piece on, you know, how, why it's going to fail. Uh, it seems to me that most people's expectations are very low, but that's, but it also, I think it, it, it engenders a lot of frustration because there, we're, we're wasting time in a church that's burning to the ground in some really important ways. And so there's my, my little spiel. I mean, anything you want to comment would be really... <laughs> no, I, everything you said that was right on target. Um, let me see if I can remember. I think it was uh, like four points. First, the uh, retreat. You know, the retreat uh, in January was recommend. You know, the Pope asked them to make a retreat. Uh, I don't think he had a clear idea of what... Uh, was going to come out of it or anything about it. I, he, he just intuitively understands that prayer and getting close to God hopefully can bring about a conversion of, of heart and mind. Um, I think that the, it, was a, it was a real mistake uh, having the, uh, uh, I forget his title of the papal chaplain or, you know, the, the guy that mm -hmm. the Pope sent over to direct this retreat was not the right guy. Uh, yeah. This is an old guy who has said stupid things in the past uh, on the whole question of the sex abuse crisis. Uh, he mm -hmm. just was totally incompetent uh, to be a leader in this kind of retreat. And I think he even as much said so when he got up there and in, in one of his talks said, I've, I'm really not going to talk about this and talk. I, you know, it was just it was just a mistake. You know, if, if they really wanted to have a successful retreat, uh, I think, you know, they would have to have someone 
directing it, who who was really in touch with uh, the whole sex abuse crisis, the damage it's done. Uh, and frankly, I was I would have told the bishops, okay, you're all going to come and make this retreat, but each of you is going to bring a, a survivor of abuse along with you uh, to make yeah. this re- retreat. And then, you yeah. know, and it's not going to be just the silent retreat. There will be times of prayer and silence, but there's also going to be times when we get, when we get together and pray together and, and share together and talk together. Uh, I mean, I have been so moved by listening to the stories of people who have been abused. I mean, it just tears your heart out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, that is the kind of retreat that I think could have been successful. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this, the, this retreat was uh, was not. Now, the mm-hmm. second thing yeah. you mentioned, I th- oh, yes, was uh, Supic's proposal. As I said, yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, having uh, the archbishops be the, uh, the, pe- the people who investigate <laughs> accusations against bishops in their, their uh, region, uh, I just don't think has credibility. Uh, you know, I think you, we have to have, it could work. I mean, after all, that's what they did with, uh, Cardinal McCarrick, his, uh, his, his, you know, the Pope said, okay, treat him as if he was just an ordinary priest in the Archdiocese of New York, which was what he was at the time of the abuse. And, mm-hmm. and so that, uh, uh, Archdiocese and Review Board, uh, looked at the case. They uh, hired investigators to do a thorough investigation. Uh, came up with the judgment that not only was, uh, it, you know, the accusations were not only incredible, but uh, I forget the other adjective they used, but basically mm-hmm. they said it was true. And yeah. uh, uh, so uh, that you know that actually worked, uh, but I think in general. Uh, I think none of these systems are going to work unless uh, there is very large lay involvement in them and by people with credibility and people who, if they, if they are ignored, they will go public and they will say, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. this is uh, a whitewash. So uh, that's, that's, I think is absolutely necessary. And, you know, now the Vatican commission, uh, which was chaired is chaired by, uh, uh, Cardinal, uh, O'Malley of Boston. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, this was a commission with a lot of good people, a lot of experts, a lot of good recommendations. Um, but you know, the congregation for doctrine of faith just ignored, uh, mm-hmm. Many of their recommendations, for example, I mean, a simple thing like they they asked that anyone who wrote in uh, would get a reply, you know, at least an acknowledgement, you know, that we yeah. got your letter, uh, yeah. you know, or something. No, and you know, they didn't do that. Well, I mean, this is just this. Uh, that's just so dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I think they found themselves very frustrated uh, in mm-hmm. that. Uh, uh, their recommendations were were not followed. I think the commission did do a lot of good because these people went around the world giving talks 
uh, in dioceses. They were invited to come to bishops' conferences. They helped these a lot of bishops' conferences draw up their uh, their policies and procedures oh, for dealing with okay. abuse. So, okay. so that was that was helpful. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, you know, so, you know, when when you ignore recommendations, that that just isn't helpful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, I don't Tom. know if I hit um, all your questions, but you did. You, you did. And, and if you ever get a chance to talk about the Steinfels um, article and your writing about that mm. in this, that would be great too. But but let somebody else go ahead here for now. Sure. Father I, Tom. Yes. Tom. I'm going to go ahead here go ahead. and jump in. I, I I've got a kind of order of things that I think I see some folks um, muted and unmuted themselves. So I'm going to go with Stephen Symbolic, who uh, raised his hand online, and then we'll. Uh, it looks like there's someone with a an 847 area code, then someone with a 703 area code, then someone with the 212 area code. So let's go ahead and start with Stephen. Hello. Um, you can go ahead and. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you had an opportunity to read the article. Uh, by Andrew Sullivan in uh, the most recent issue of New York Magazine called Gay Priests. Um, and the reason I'm asking this question is um, one of the observations he makes is that um, instead of focusing on the victims of sexual abuse in the church, what is actually happening now is they're trying to blame the sexual abuse crisis on homosexual priests. And um, that this is really uh, an agenda with, um, with legs. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. I don't know if you had a chance to read this article, but um, it was a very, very um, lucid, but also disturbing uh, thing uh, that I, I think uh, is a piece of this whole uh, sexual abuse puzzle. Yes, yes. I, I, I apologize. I have not read the article yet. I've read other things by him, and I'm familiar with the uh, with the controversy. I mean, it's this is early as 2002. Uh, this was being bandied about uh, by some who wanted to blame the abuse crisis uh, on homosexuals and the clergy. Uh, every scholar, every expert who has looked at this issue says no. Uh, that, in fact, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, clearly uh, not, you know, uh, there are millions of homosexuals out there in the world uh, and thousands of them in the clergy uh, who are not involved in abuse. Uh, this is, it's just simply wrong. And when you actually look at the priests involved in abuse, uh, many of those who abuse boys were in fact heterosexuals. These are people whose sexuality is very confused and also, uh, they're like wolves. It's targets of opportunity. Uh, I mean, it's sad to say, but... Frankly, girls were protected by the church because we didn't allow altar girls. Um, boys were much are much were much more accessible uh, to priests than girls were. Um, you know, it, it, first of all, because of altar boys, just the contact that way. But secondly, just think about it for a minute. If 
father has a cabin in the woods and he says, oh, I want to take some of the, the, you know, the altar boys up for a weekend in my cabin. Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of people would say, oh, isn't that nice? Well, sure. Have fun. Go ahead. Uh, Now, if if father said, I want to take some girls up to my cabin in the woods, I think eyebrows would have gone up and they wouldn't have done it. This is strange. But but the point here is that uh, many of these abusers were were hitting targets of opportunity. And, And we see this not just with altar boys, but also relatives. You know, nieces and nephews uh, were also very much uh, uh, victims of abuse. Uh, And, of course, we see this in families uh, to a great extent. Uh, You know, it's it's and and it's not it doesn't really have anything uh, to do with homosexuality. if you know it, 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 I I find that convincing. And this is, you know, this is just not my opinion. When the the John Jay uh, uh, folks at the John Jay School of Criminology, the expert there, experts there, they reviewed all the literature back in 2002 and said exactly the same thing that this is that the cause of the sex abuse crisis is not uh, homosexuals uh, in the and the clergy. Thanks, Tom. There was someone with a an eight four seven area code. So, if you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question, star six unmute yourself. Go ahead. Okay, maybe uh, they're no longer on the line. Uh, Someone with the 703 area code had a question. That may be me. Uh, This is Liz McCluskey. Hi, Father Tom. Hi, Liz. Uh, Hi. I know you're familiar with the five thesis effort, which is uh, five very simple principles that a number of people are gathering behind as sort of a message to the bishops and the worldwide leadership of the church. And I wonder what you think we can do as lay Catholics all across the country. I guess I'm thinking about Americans, but also um, I suppose in other countries as well, to amplify that message and to, to sort of rally behind some simple principles that the church leadership, the hierarchy, can take some action on. Is there anything that we can do that could actually be heard? Well, you know, when I was writing my book Inside the Vatican, I was talking to a lot of the folks over in the Vatican. And one of the things uh, they said to me is they said, you know, we don't hear anymore from uh, liberal Catholics. We only hear from conservatives. 
course, this was this was back in the time of John Paul II that I was researching my book. I think, you know, many progressives gave up on writing letters. Uh, you know, they felt it just didn't do any good. Uh, but I think now's an, a chance, you know, to say, hey, we need a letter writing campaign to the bishop. Uh, we need a re- letter writing campaign to to Rome. They need to hear from us. Uh, you know, when if, if, if a bishop gets, frankly, if a bishop gets 10 letters, he gets nervous. You know, if you get a couple hundred people writing to a bishop saying, you know, why are the, why haven't you put up the names of, uh, the priests who have been involved in abuse in your diocese or whatever, you know, or, or what do you think about these principles that we're articulating here? Will you commit yourself to implementing these principles in your diocese? You know, I, you know, I think we, we have to start thinking about some of those old ways that we gave up on of, of going back and, and writing and pressuring and, you know, a, a petition, uh, some of these things to get. But I, I think, you know, individual letters are, I think, are much more uh, useful than, uh, than a petition. Um, and, it, you know, just to, to tell the bishop, yes, we want you to do that. And I think, you know, the other thing we need to do is, um, you know, when the bishop does put up the, the names of all the priests who have been credibly accused of abuse in his diocese, we need to send a letter complimenting him, thanking him for finally doing it, but at least thanking him. Because he's going to get pushback from the clergy. There's going to be a lot of priests in the diocese that are really unhappy about that. Uh, and a lot of opposition to that uh, uh, among the clergy. And I think, you know, we need the laity pushing back saying, yes, you did the right thing. You know, have courage. You know, keep it up. And, you know, and that transparency is an absolute necessity uh, in, in resolving, uh, this crisis. So, um, I think those are some of the things that can be done. Of course, you know, op-eds in the local newspaper, uh, are always helpful, uh, get lots of attention. Um, so I think, you know, that's just some things off the top of my head. That's great. Thank you. Great, and we uh, had someone with a 212 area code. I believe you're already unmuted. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi, um, hi. this is Rita Houlihan, and thank you very much, Tom, and uh, Deb and Russ. Um, Tom, going back to some of your earlier statements about the removal of um, a priest who's been credibly accused um, of uh, abusing a minor, um, I wanted to ask if there's a process now for the bishops to alert um, the local authorities, or, or a way that they can track the former priests, um, because especially if the statute of limitations prevented prosecution, then that priest, uh, former priest, is not registered in the legal system. So, so basically, they're, they, I, it seems to me that they are then free to go wherever they want, and they could abuse again. So, do you know if that's come up as a um, a problem uh, with a solution yet? But that clearly is an issue that has come up, you know, uh, you know, once the priest is thrown out of the uh, priesthood, 
the diocese no longer has any jurisdiction over him, no longer has any authority over him. Uh, he can go wherever he wants. He can move. He can do whatever he, you know, uh, he's, he's like he's no longer an employee uh, in a secular sense of the term. Uh, there's very little that the church can do. Uh, what, you know, no more than any employee can do anything uh, about an employee after they've been fired. Um, and I, you know, you, you, uh, I, you'd have to get a lawyer to answer the question that I'm now going to raise, and that is, uh, could they legally do anything? You know, if if you start... I mean, if you start publishing somebody's current address on your website, you say this priest was credible, this person was credibly accused while he was a priest, and here's where he's living now. Uh, I mean, I think you could be sued, probably. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know for a fact, but uh, especially if he's not been convicted of a crime. Um, all of this has led some people to argue, and this is a very controversial question. This has led some people to argue that it would be better uh, for the community, for children, if, uh, if instead of laicizing priests, you warehouse them at monasteries or uh, someplace where they're kind of confined to the, to the property. Um, and uh, not allowed to leave the property. Uh, okay, we continue to feed and clothe them and give them health care. Uh, you know, they're basically retired there. Uh, but, you know, but they are not allowed any access to children. Now, uh, and as long as they obey the rules, well, you know, they, the diocese will continue to feed, clothe, and uh, uh, take care of them. If, if they leave the property or go, you know, don't follow the safety protocols, then then you, you dump them, you throw them out because you can't be uh, liable. That's that kind of thing. I, I, I think that would probably make the community safer, but it's quite controversial. First of all, the diocesan lawyers hate it. They say, get rid of them. We don't want the legal liability uh, for you know, as long as they're on the payroll, you're liable. And if he does something again, you're going to be, you're going to be killed. You're talking millions of dollars. Uh, and many of the survivors don't like this. They say, Hey, you know, he's, he's living the life of Riley, you know, he's, he's a nice retirement facility. You know, he's uh, getting three squares a day. He's got his health care and his, you know, equivalent of a pension, you know, um, they want him punished, and that doesn't look like punishment. So um, I don't know what to do with that. Um, I think, you know, uh, many of the religious communities have decided that they're, they will go that route because uh, they, their position is that these, these offenders are members of the, the community, of their family, and then they are going to take responsibility for them uh, but religious communities have better, have more, are more likely to have facilities for warehousing people. But even there, it's quite controversial. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is there. 
but there is an argument that that would actually make uh, the community safer than simply throwing them out on the street. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And hopefully, maybe uh, that's a topic we can continue to explore in uh, future teleconferences. I do see that we are uh, running up against our time limit here. Um, so I'm going to turn things over to Deb for a closing prayer and some uh, final announcements, and then I'll say a final good night to everyone. So, um, first of all, I just can't tell you how wonderful it is to hear your voice, Tom, and to hear your insights and your, you know, your analysis of what's going on. There's, this is such a complicated and big problem, and you, you have a way of breaking it down in a way that's um, accessible and, and, and understandable, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. So we're so grateful that you Thank were here tonight. Thank you. You're yeah. very kind. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I just want to tell you that I have two announcements in terms of what's going on that I want you to hear about. Uh, Russ has put together a phenomenal series uh, that we're, Tom has led off here tonight, which are to the people from clericalism to collaboration. And so we have, we have the beginning of a lineup and it's going to continue on uh, probably for a whole year. Uh, addressing the issues of clericalism in the church, clergy sex abuse, all the problems that have have um, been generated out of this notion that there's we're, we're sort of a two-tier system within this within this church, and um, and you know not only addressing the problems but trying to find solutions. So we have Francine Cardman, who's a professor at BC, coming up in February. He's going to talk about the sort of the history of clericalism. We have Tom Doyle, which maybe all of you know who's done so much important work in terms of clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Carrie Robinson, Leadership Roundtable, is going to talk about financial transparency and their work and our work in terms of holding bishops and the church higher, uh, leadership accountable in terms of financial ability. We have Michelle Dillon's going to come on from CARA. Uh, she's going to talk about uh, the euphemization of power within the Catholic Church. Katie Grimes is going to talk about holding clergy sex clergy uh, accountable. There's there's just it's just one and really important conversation after another. Uh, we'll be sending out emails. You can come to our website to see. I just have to really hand it to Russ for uh, creating such a phenomenal series. It's it's really going to be great, good information for us. Um, the second thing I want to talk about, just to, to make sure you all know about, we have a phenomenal pilgrimage coming up with Chris Schenk, um, our you know our wonderful uh, founder, um, who's written this you know uh, enormously important book called Crispina and Her Sisters, uh, from the uh, Women in Authority in the in the Early Church, and um, she's going to lead a pilgrimage in Rome. This is you know at the very heart of her expertise. We're going to look at those inscriptions, which show beyond the literary evidence, you know, that women were in leadership in, in profound ways that that simply aren't the story isn't told in the literary evidence, but it is told in the inscriptional evidence and archaeological evidence. So so Chris is going to lead that trip. You know, we have some scholarships available, so please contact us and and uh, get on board for a trip of a lifetime in terms of the pilgrimage. So. 
as we leave tonight. And I'm just, again, so grateful for what Russ has done in terms of setting this up. And then all of you for joining us. And Tom, you know, we just so much respect your voice, your experience. You know, you've, you've been, uh, you know, a clear guide throughout so much history within the Catholic Church. And we're just very thankful that you're here tonight and very happy to have had you. And um, I, I know for me, it's been, it's just, I've been listening every single word. So it's, it's been really important. So as we end tonight, let's end with some prayer. We trust in God's everlasting love and care for us. And we lift up the needs for victims, survivors of clergy sex abuse, that they may be open to tell the truth of their experience and find listening ears and open hearts when they do, that they may be healed of physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds, and that they may receive full and unqualified justice. And we pray for the empowerment of civil officials, for the laws that uphold the dignity and rights of victims, for the overturning of statutes of limitations and the end of an immoral use of legal maneuvers and tactics. We pray for Pope Francis, bishops and cardinals, priests and all those in authority in our church, that they may be open, transparent and forthcoming with the truth about clergy sex abuse and cover-ups. We pray for abusers and for those involved in cover-ups, that they may be moved to accept responsibility and punishment and penance for their crimes, find professional help and seek forgiveness. We pray for an end of patriarchy, patriarchy which marginalizes, excludes, and even scapegoat women and LGBTQ persons, and for an openness to healthier theologies and understandings of all humanity. We pray for an end to clericalism, which falsely claims superiority of the ordained over everyone else. We pray for the empowerment of the lady, that they may take up their rightful place in the life, mission, and governance of the church at every level. And we pray for all of us gathered here, that we may be emboldened to speak out plainly, courageously, prophetically against individuals, systems, and structures that abuse and silence. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Tom, so much. Again, um, I can't say any more than what uh, Deb has already said, so thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for joining us tonight and for your patience at the front end of this call. Uh, I know, uh, like I feel, uh, I'm sure that you also uh, feel that it was well worth the little bit of extra weight there while we uh, worked out the technical glitches. And finally, thank you to all of our future church members and donors. Uh, it's because of their generosity and their contributions that we're able to offer these uh, teleconferences uh, for free to all of you. If you are interested in making a donation to help uh, keep these going, you can go to our website, www.futurechurch.org. Good night, everyone. Thank you for a wonderful evening, insightful, prayerful, and hopeful. Take care.